White men killed his father and forced his mother into a mental health facility. Discrimination and racism filled his preteen years. As a teenager, an opportunity to relocate and start fresh living with his half-sister turns into a door that leads to prison. His time in prison changes his life forever. The man, Malcolm X. The book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! You're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and trauma. Yes. Kari, Kari, did you get a chance to watch D'Angelo and Friends <laughs> on the Versus Battle? You know, I'm very disappointed because I don't think your friend circle needs to be huge, but I would assume <laughs> that D'Angelo had more than three friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I thought he would have at least five friends. But I, I, you know, because there was this long period. I was like, there's a lot of D'Angelo. And I enjoy <laughs> D'Angelo. I'm just saying, like, I insert friend here. That's what I wanted. You know, yeah. even it out a little bit. But they did. It, and the friends that did showed up, they showed up um, very well. So I do kind of feel like it was false advertising. I mean, to have DJ Scratch there, I guess he is one of the friends too. He's a great DJ, so cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Her, of course, but she sang one song and a little bit of Lauren's part on Nothing Even Matters. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I felt like more her would have been perfect. Uh, D'Angelo versus her, that would have been great. I would have loved that. Did you know it was originally planned to be D'Angelo versus Maxwell on Valentine's Day? So what happened? Um, some fell through and Maxwell, you know, didn't go forward. Maxwell. And what? D'Angelo was available, ready to go and everything. So they's like, um, we got to get his man his flowers now and let him shine. So they went forward with it. Yeah, he's a showman. I saw him at mm, Pitchfork uh, when he was in Chicago. and. I mean, that's a great show. The Black Messiah had just came out and um, uh-huh. it, I just love, you know, I don't want to say that, you know, our music is better than your music, kids, but it <laughs> is because <though>. <laughs> it's music, like instruments and singing instruments. and stuff. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. he had on my mama's coat and he kept it on <laughs> the whole show. And I like that in him, you know, um, the he was bucking tradition. Show he kept it on. Yes. He kept it on the entire show. He was not going to conform to our standards of fashion. He was going to wear Erica Badu hat, <laughs> Jill Scott coat, Patti LaBelle scarf. He was reminding us of all the past verses we loved. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it. I caught the symbolism, D.D. Thank and, you, and, uh, D.D. But and I Patti was. LaBelle stopped in the comments, too. So that was cool. Did, oh, well, she's just for the people. I love Patty <laughs> LaBelle. Um, so I was both elated and disappointed at the same time. And then I was like, whoa, when I thought Woo came out, I literally screamed because <laughs> Red, Red like lost some weight. They both look vegan. I don't know what Method Man is drinking, <laughs> but I mean, is he on a kale diet? Because he going to stay 35 forever. 
Right. How old is Method Man? I don't know, girl. I'm about to look he it up because he looks or great. Somebody said 40. his wife is a very fortunate woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've been saying that for a while. His name been in the streets. He you looks hear me? great. Yeah, he's a looker there. Yep. Uh, he's 49. <laughs> that man is 50 years old. That's a granddaddy. Yeah. Come on now. He looks great. <laughs> That's hilarious. He is 50. Yeah. Well, good for you, Method Man. Drink them green juices. Hey. Um, well, he does. He does. He do, he lifts a lot. Um, I have seen his Instagram page where he's uh. You <laughs> now you telling on yourself. Let's move on. What did you think about? <laughs> <laughs> It was it was so mellow. It I enjoyed it. It was very mellow. Oh, another thing they said is that um, DJ Scratch was the pre-show. D'Angelo, in fact, was three hours early. He was the earliest performer in all their versus battles. So yeah, he seems really professional. Out. I would have mm-hmm. liked to see some um, Angie Stone. <laughs> yeah, you know, yes. I don't know if they some talk anymore, but yeah, and. Uh, Lauren, of course, would have been, you know, I wasn't getting my hopes that high. I know Twitter was like, is Lauren in New York? Please. Um, You and I have been to a Lauren concert and it was a mess. (laughs) Yes, we Yes, But shout out to Lauren. We still love you. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I I did enjoy it. It was so mellow and, and I think it was time for my bed. So I was glad when they ended. Yeah. Sharply at 1030. Yeah. Like disconnect this live immediately. And um <laughs> I, I would because I was getting tired. I was getting tired. So okay. but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Do you mm-hmm. think they could do a solo versus again? They could. Like I think they could do a solo versus with Maxwell. So I but I would really want some friends. I mean, ideally, I would love to see Missy Elliott and friends. Oh, now she's so humble and creative. That would be fun. Mm -hmm. She would make it a thing and be really entertaining. But she also has a lot of friends because everyone loves Missy. So she could bring on. She truly has a lot of friends. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But this could have been just one more thing. Like this could have been the Afro soul versus we needed. Like I would have loved to see Solange. I would have loved to see Erica again. I mean. I don't know, but so D'Angelo much. did great. It was, yeah. it was good. I read it. I'll never watch it again. You'll never watch another versus battle again? I won't watch this one again. Like some of oh. them I've re- rewatched. Do they post them on um, YouTube? <laughs> Pirate it, but you can also watch it on IG, on versus IG. Oh, okay. They keep it on their IGTV? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's good. And if you had an Apple device like me, you could have oh. watched it on your television this, in stereo is a, sound. Is this a regular now? Is this I'm what you're doing? I'm just saying, come is to the light. Now? Oh, wow. Now it's come to the light. Okay. I see you. I see you looking down on me, but yeah. I don't care. I'm happy in my peace. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's time for Society Says, where we share your comments with the rest of our lit society. Kari, is there a comment that you thought was lit and you wanted to share? I sure do. 
This comment comes from our YouTube channel and it's from Diana Lopez, a real life friend. Hey girl. And this is on our uh, Nickel Boys uh, show, which was also a video podcast. So if you want to see our faces for some reason, you can head over to YouTube and see that show um, and a few visual elements we added uh, for YouTube exclusively. And her comment is, who's cutting onions? Woo. <laughs> uh, who is cutting onions? Woo. I didn't e even expect that ending, but weirdly enough, I feel encouraged to read it versus spoiled of an ending. I love this one. Amazing job, y'all. Thank, thank you. Thank, thank you, Diana. You. Yeah, that book was uh, an emotional adventure. <laughs> it yeah, was. So, so we definitely can, um, yeah, sympathize with your response, with your uh, reaction. <laughs> what about you, Alexis? Is there a comment you thought particularly lit that you'd like to share? I do. Now, listen, this is a comment somebody talking to their friend and I just kind of dipped in and stole it. OK, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. So oh, this okay. It's like in a chain of responses and you was like eavesdropping within the feet. Who that called yeah, my name? Kind of yeah. like that. Kind okay. of like that. But this is from... <laughs> The bookish Pisces. And this person was uh, tagged their friend, Isabel M. Finucci. I hope I'm saying that right. And what they said to their friend is, this is a great podcast, exclamation mark. So I just wanted to jump in there and get that. <laughs> but then they also told their friend, I haven't read Long Bright River yet, but you should listen. I'm still on hold for this at the library. And, you know... I like the library, so I had to jump in that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and shout out to Liz Moore, author of Long Bright River, who came on our show. Thank you yes, so much. Thank you again. The time you took out with us. We really appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, for real. Well, remember, readers, to have your comments shared, message us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Even though we really don't go out there, we really do go out there sometimes. Or we especially love it when you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. <laughs> Each week, we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book that we're reading. This week's theme is the power of traveling abroad. Oh, I love that. I love how that relates to this book, too. Yeah. So, Kari, I don't know if you know this, but I did my first cruise with you and my first European travel was with you. What? Yeah. Yeah. Aww. I was. It was at a time when I was living. I was so focused. I was raising my daughter and going to school full time. And so there, I had a lot going on and like travel was like the furthest thing from my mind uh, outside the country. And you just kind of popped up. Actually, you wanted me to babysit. So <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> I wanted you to babysit. Yeah. On the cruise. Oh, why? Because we were minors. Yeah, you're <laughs> minors. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let me just interject. When you are whatever age I was, anyone in their 20s seems like 90 years old like they seem like they're so full of and you are but you I was gonna say full of wisdom which you are and like just the model of like you know so much of what you want to be when you grow up and now I feel like we the same age <laughs> even though but we're at that not. time you was like you know Alexis I was grown, grown, you was big yeah. sis Alexis <laughs> that's crazy you just blew my mind 
Yeah, I'm like, baby said, thing. I ain't got no kids. Yeah. We, we really tricked you into uh, coming with us on that children's excursion. Okay, go it's ahead. Hilarious. Well, good for you for doing it. <laughs> I was like, I need, I do need a break. This sounds reasonable. I could do it. I could do it. Anyway, do you remember your first cruise or your trip out of the country? Yes, my parents are African-American, so I've been on many cruises. I've hated most of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I is find... that what the African-Americans be doing? <laughs> yeah, that's what we do, girl. <laughs> Sorry to stereotype, but you know, stereotypes don't apply to the individual. They apply to the majority, and Black mm. people love cruises. Um, I feel like it's prison with old, er, older ones, older strangers, and babies. And why mm. would I want to do that? <laughs> mm. But um, yeah, I've been on a few, more than a few cruises to a few places. And then you hop off and you get to experience the land for an hour or three hours. Maybe like six. literally, <laughs> literally. That's the part I don't like about it. And I'd then back just to go. the boat for the endless mm-hmm. supply of food. So, uh, yeah, I remember. Was that your question? Did I answer your question? Um, so then what was your first interaction with? the people of the country that you visited. Well, just think about the one that stands out to you the most where you went and you got to interact with the people. Yeah. So another reason I hate cruises is that you're stuck usually in this um, bubble for tourists and you don't get to see how people really are and how they really live. I remember someone I was working with went to Jamaica and I was like, oh, did you get to go here or there? And she was like, no, I heard Jamaica was kind of dangerous. And I just (laughs) thought, (laughs) gross. So um, anyway, if you love cruises, great. To answer your question, Alexis, because I sound really high and mighty right now. That's not what I mean to sound like. Um, the first, I mean, everyone's first trip out of the country is Canada, right? Uh, no. Or Mexico. Oh, no. Okay. No. Yeah, oh, Mex- no. Okay. So I remember um, going specifically to Mexico to a village with my parents and um, there were no cars and we had to like bike or you could ride in on a donkey if you wanted to be like really touristy. Oh, wow. And uh, you could eat artisan bread baked in, um, you know, someone's floor in their kitchen, which was Mm -hmm. awesome. Um, And then, you know, we could connect with real friends uh, there and and that was fun. And then... um, as I got older and over 18 and I no longer needed you to chaperone my visits outside of the country, (laughs) Uh, I spent an extended period in Italy and I went by myself um, and, you know, never felt alone, Uh, you know, made family there uh, that I still talk to to this day and that you have also made your family and you weren't even with me on that trip. And that's just (laughs) awesome. Yeah, yeah, that was. That's good. So do you you remember um, the feelings that you had when you first hit land or? Yes. Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. So exciting. Everything is new. The train, the ticket. And especially when you're like young and impressionable, everything is so cool. I remember putting on a fake accent um, (laughs) and helping tourists. (laughs) Wait a minute. Stop. (laughs) It's okay. So I was by myself and I wanted to entertain me. So someone asked me for instruction and, you know, I I like did my fake accent from some land I made up. I don't know. We'll say Wakanda. And I responded to them in Italian. I don't know if the directions were correct, but I felt great. And it was fun and funny to me. 
and it was great. And you know, just side note, I remember be feeling that again when we went to Cuba. You know, we went to Cuba what a year ago. It's almost two. I think it's two years now. <laughs> we were walking. I was walking the street, and um, a guy approached me and asked for directions in really oh. broken Spanish. <laughs> and I was like, um, "I'm American, so you can just speak English." And he was like, "Oh my goodness!" Um, and then I somehow told him I was like from Chicago. He was like, "Me too." <laughs> from the Chicago area and they needed directions. It was great. Um, So I just remember that feeling of being in a a new world, new opportunities. No one knows you. The anonymity is intoxicating. It It is is. so fun to be somewhere where no one knows you and um, to just like pave a way um, and to rely on the kindness of others um, without being a burden. You know, you always want to bring enough money and have a place to stay and all that and arrange as much as you can. But at some point, you're going to have to humble yourself. And that's awesome. Uh, whether you get lost, like I've been lost in Sweden for five hours in the rain mm. and the cold yeah. mm. Uh, mm. Uh, until someone had to come find me. Um, I got lost in Italy um, and Ooh. a friend of mine, It's it's it was a different time so me and my friend who was Italian she didn't have to take public transportation like me so she was only doing it for me and then we both got lost and so we we got scared because of the neighborhood and ran into a blockbuster Italy used to be full like Bracia used to be full of blockbusters and KFCs and it was like it was like straight up out of Chicago but in Italy and that was like our little safe haven so you know, all that little stupid stuff you remember forever. Um, a friend that we have in common, I remember meeting her for the first time and to think that, you know, we're friends today. And and yeah, so and, and then you st- when you stay for an extended period, everything looks new and interesting when you start. Um, but then after a few weeks or months, it just feels like home. And the, the street corners that you saw as, um, you know, nests for new opportunity they're just street corners <laughs> and you like talking to <laughs> you like talking to the market owner like about the day and you know it's just nice it's just cool it really helped me feel like I am um uh you know a, a, a member of a global body of humankind <laughs> mm-hmm. which is the truth so what about you what do you remember how you felt I've been talking a lot thank you that's uh, okay. for <laughs> allowing me to relive that uh, but what memories do, would you like to share from um, traveling and how that affected your outlook on the world and on life yeah I um so I remember the cruise like you said you have this limited space that you could um, participate in um, so that was limiting but I enjoyed that first cruise the the, um, the people that I was with that was enjoyable um, but you didn't really get to interact with the people on that trip so my first interaction with live locals was like in um, I think I was in the Dominican or Jamaica not one of the others but both of them I mean, I just felt like my eyes were opened, of course, to how people live differently. Um, it made me appreciate the things that I have myself. And it made me um, it just happy uh, to be able to have the experience of being in someone else's culture 
and learning about it. And that is what I love more than anything when I travel yeah. out of the country. That is being with the people and how they live, not necessarily doing what the tourists do. Mm-hmm. That Absolutely. is not my yeah. favorite thing at right. all. My favorite thing is being with the locals, um, hearing them, their experiences and what they do. So I love that. It, it really opens my eyes and um, it takes me out of the limited space of, say, uh, the community in which I grew up and sees the world uh, larger. And travel tends to do that for you in a really good and strong way. Uh, you see the world differently. You see people differently. You ha- you develop respect for others. Yeah. Um, and you realize that um, you realize the subtle lies you've been fed um, either consciously or unknowingly through the media in your country, in your locale. I remember um, when I went to Istanbul for the first time, I was awed by how safe it was and how clean everything was. And this sounds so ignorant, but I was truly ignorant. Um, and, it, and I've never been in a country where I, I didn't know the language at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so not, you know, only knowing a few expressions and not understanding anything. Um, I was really grateful for the the grace people showed me um how generous people were and again just how safe and clean and beautiful um everything was and then to hear the evening prayer um while you're having dinner it's in, it's just um yeah there there's nowhere like um like Istanbul or, or or you know Turkey and um yeah I was just really grateful for that so I can definitely under um understand what you're saying yeah um, uh, what do you, did you learn when you travel about cultures that stand out to you that uh, make you want to, um, go back, if you will, to the place that you, um, appreciate it in any place you went? Um, the only thing that makes me want to return are people. So, um, when I have a person that I connect with and want to visit, I love taking those, I'm, I'm putting down cruises a lot, but I think cruises and also ground tours like you and I, um, and your sister did a tour of Italy from top to bottom in 14 yeah. days. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. not going to feel like a local. You're going to do the touristy stuff with a little bit of time with the locals in between each city. Right. Right. But that gave me, that gives you a good footprint for, so that when you come back, you can choose a location and kind of pseudo live there uh, for a little bit and and get more of that local experience and be yeah. of use to people uh, when you can. So what makes me want to go back after, you know, getting an understanding of the layout of the area and the culture are the people and, and just being drawn in um, by how uh, unique we all are, but culturally, but also how uh how the same we are and how we're all attracted mm-hmm. to the, the, um, I, I can't get away from humility, how humility and love go a long way. Um, yeah. and it teaches you to be street smart too, in a way, even yeah. back home, um, to be guarded with information about yourself while still being generous, um, and still being open, um, but being reserved. Uh, and those skills are valuable no matter where you are. Um, so yeah, it's always the people. What about for you? What, what makes you want to go back to a country after you visit it? And not just a country. I don't want to be precious about travel. If you go to Indiana and you feel like, exactly. yeah, exactly. this is awesome. And, and you meet new friends, you're going to want to go back. So, um, in anywhere you've traveled, what has made you want to return? Uh, it, I, I'm with you. It's the people. Um, I met a, 
fact, since you bring up Indiana, I went to Indiana a few years ago. Well, it feels like five now, but it's been a while. But I went to Indiana not too long ago, um, stayed with some friends there that I uh, met on a volunteer assignment. And boy, what a lovely experience I had. I keep in touch with this person, the people that I stay with to this day. Uh, they write me regularly, check and oh, see wow. how I'm doing. Um, I, <laughs> we keep up. Mm-hmm. We love each other. We are friends. I can officially say that we are friends. Um, and then outside the country, I have a friend in Cuba that I love dearly. He's very mm-hmm. special to me, him and his family. Um, they're very generous to me. And um, they make me feel welcome. I've been to Cuba twice and they make me feel welcome in their country. So I, um, yeah, that it really um, broadens my view of the world and and where you fit into it yeah mm -hmm. and my with my interactions with them uh social media has a tendency to make the world small but when you go out and travel you can see just how big it is but then you're narrowed down when you learn like where you meet somebody in Italy from Chicago, right? <laughs> yeah, or Cuba, it was Cuba, but yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. And they ask you for directions in terrible Spanish. Yeah. So you're you're <laughs> you're you're you see the world tiny, you know, through social media, it gets big. And then you're like, oh, what a small world we we live in. It actually in. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. those are like just really grand things about travel and they really do broaden your view of the world um every you learn that people don't all live and have the same experiences right Mm -hmm. america isn't the end all be all can i say that and so many people abroad know more about american history than many americans yeah yeah i've learned that with our mutual friend she's always she's such a wisecracker she's always you know (laughs) she knows more than me okay i went to public school okay and it's just not the same in our public schools i can't say that we are taught about the world as a whole. Let's right? not make it about public school, even in private schools in America. Our children excel in confidence, but in mm. basic knowledge and um, practical, mm, uh, what am I trying to say? Like practical capabilities, we are lagging in the progressive world. And you see that in people who claim to, for example, love their country, but don't know what Jim Crow is or so no. So uh, yeah. The go ahead. That's true too. So even in the the school system, we're not always taught everything that is going on in the world. And if if it is introduced to us, maybe by a paragraph, um I, that brings to mind something when somebody in the um Malcolm said in the book that there was a paragraph or a sentence. It was about, a paragraph, yeah, a, about a particular topic, and that's the that was my experience in school. It's very limited, especially about um, the U.S. Mm-hmm. Very limited. You know, it was expansive of where it wanted to be expansive about, but then I'm going to say for other countries that wasn't a big topic. Whereas, like you mentioned, people outside of um, America they tend to know a lot about what's going on in America where I have a limited 
my personal experience is that I have a limited view of the outside world and my experience of knowing that outside world comes from knowing people um, that I've met here that are from elsewhere or traveling abroad um, and um, chance to travel freely again uh, happens. What do you look forward to traveling to? I would like to go to West Africa, South Africa, um, and I would like to take my mom to Spain for a month and bum around there. That would be cool. Again, to see some friends Mm -hmm. um, and to introduce them to my mom Mm -hmm. and some friends in Italy that I've been talking to forever. And, you know, I know intimately they've never met my mom and it's weird. Um, So so I think it's time that that happens. So uh, my mom's never been to Europe or or, you know, the Middle East or Africa. So we're going to make that happen. So what about you? Well, um, back to Cuba, I know to see your friends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's always at the top of my list is going back to Cuba. Again, the anonymity there is just so. Who am I? But that's what I like. So, okay, that's (laughs) what I enjoy. Anyway, um, I had a trip that was postponed and that was to South Africa. And then um, so then I also have an opportunity to go to Nigeria. So two back to back trips to Africa. Oh, and, and Zimbabwe. Yeah. I'm sure my husband and I will be coming along whether you invite us or not. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to babysit. Yeah. You got a babysitter. What? No. Well, no then who's going to take care of the producer? I don't trust anybody with the producer Okay, now. that's my cat. If you're not a longtime <laughs> reader of this show, when we leave town, Alexis always kindly watches Zara the Perfect Kitten. Hashtag Zara the Perfect Kitten. You'll find her on Instagram. Go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, let's take a quick break before we jump into um, the author and context about the book. Great fun. Thank you. Okay. about our well some context about the book and the author you will so I was thinking maybe we could skip that this time because it is an autobiography and we're gonna um delve deeply into the life of one Malcolm Little in our deep dive and I love that reminder <laughs> thank you so much no thank you okay <laughs> uh, it, it worked great yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you would make me do it okay great thanks <laughs> no, that's what I do for all my uh, such books. So anyway, moving right along, let's hear then a brief synopsis without spoilers before we jump into our deep dive. All right. So many have their opinions about him, but this is his story told in his own words through a series of uninhibited conversations with one of the most influential authors of his time. He brings himself down from the pedestal some have made for him and up from the abyss others have thrown him in with a vulnerable telling of his start as a survivor from the gutters of society to his life as a passionate speaker in the halls of HBCUs and Ivy League universities. This is the story of Malcolm Little, who became Malcolm X. Alexis, what were your first thoughts of the book? Oh, yeah. You know, so I'd never read the book. So I was excited when I saw um, 
saw it on the list and I was excited also to listen to it, even though I, I've mentioned in a past episode, I, I realized that I don't um, like um, audiobooks, you know, audiobooks. But actually, I think it just that book made me not like audiobooks. What book was it? It was um, The Thursday Murder Club. I'm positive. Oh, that, yeah, that it's a it. lot of characters. This is different. It focuses on one man. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes, I was excited when I got the news that we were reading this book. Did you feel like this is a book that you should read? Were you told in in school or growing up that you know everyone has to read the autobiography of Malcolm X? No, ma'am. I was never told that. Never okay. told that. Um. So, to have this experience at this time was just you know it works out because it, there are books that I, I know I feel like I should read uh what about you who do you think would enjoy reading this book yeah if you are interested in um diving into the mind of someone who lived in a different time and perhaps came from a different place and how um the circumstances of their situation led them to through a specific path that you would not necessarily take, or maybe you would have. Um, I think this is a great book. I, I really think this is another one that could be like required reading um, mm. in school. Yeah. And, and I, can I just say, I agree with you there because it, it, um, it's I, like intrinsic to the American experience. Yeah. His experience kind of links up with some of the other, um, history books that we've read. Um, the, the um black fortunes no black fortune is that the name of the book hmm. yeah so go ahead continue. i connected it um like yeah so this is like a deep dive into that experience they were talking about and then when we read um i don't think it was black fortunes because that was post-slavery millionaires and this book is like talking about the you know 30s 40s 50s 60s Maybe uh, The Warmth of Other Suns. The Warmth of Other Suns is the book that I'm talking about. So I feel it could like, be like a pickup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In- it could be like Black Fortunes. Then you read The Warmth of Other Suns. Then you read Malcolm X and then probably cast. Yes. So that's what I felt yeah, like this was. I, I was felt following like a path. And I and, and for my experience here, I like I got like little bitty details that helped me enjoy those stories even more so yeah that's so cool like if you read a book about the russian revolution or you know what you just read animal farm (laughs) (laughs) but then you read about an you read an autobiography about someone who lived during that time that's a great like well-rounded education Mm -hmm. of the time period so i yeah i get what you're saying that's great yeah yeah i agree uh there we have it kari are you ready to jump right in and dive into the autobiography of Malcolm X? I was born ready. Let's do it. Oh, I also want to say that this is my um, second time reading the book and I picked it up or put it on the list this time because Audible has a version translated by, translated, read by Lawrence Fishburne, who we couldn't get on the show. (laughs) I I never asked. (laughs) But um, so if you've read this book before, perhaps you're interested in seeing how Lawrence Fishburne um, performs it. And now the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley. Part one, the beginning and the end. Still shouting threats, the Klansmen finally spurred their horses and galloped around the house. 
shattering every window pane with their gun butts. Then they rode off into the night, their torches flaring as suddenly as they had come. My father was enraged when he returned. He decided to wait until I was born, which would be soon, and then the family would move. I am not sure why he made this decision, for he was not a frightened Negro, as most then were, and many still are today. My father was a big, six-foot-four, very black man. He had only one eye. How he had lost the other one, I have never known. He was from Reynolds, Georgia, where he had left school after the third or maybe fourth grade. He believed, as did Marcus Garvey, that freedom, independence, and self-respect could never be achieved by the Negro in America, and that therefore the Negro should leave America to the white man and return to his African land of origin. Among the reasons my father had decided to risk and dedicate his life to help disseminate this philosophy among his people was that he had seen four of his six brothers die by violence, three of them killed by white men, including one by lynching. What my father could not know then was that of the remaining three, including himself, only one, my Uncle Jim, would die in bed of natural causes. Northern white police were later to shoot my Uncle Oscar, and my father was finally himself to die by the white man's hands. It has always been my belief that I, too, will die by violence. I have done all that I can to be prepared. A Baptist preacher, his father was intent to preach that black men and women should leave America in part because four of his six brothers were killed by white men. Of all of his brothers, including him, only one would eventually die of natural causes. The rest died by violence. After his mother gave birth, his father took the family to Milwaukee. His mother was educated and like light skinned. Um, Malcolm X's father her okay Malcolm X's mother's father Malcolm's grandfather was white which was his mother's shame Um, this is all Malcolm knew about his maternal grandfather and it's because of this grandfather that Malcolm had red hair and light skin Um, and I'm actually going to call him Malcolm Little until we get to his like teenage years where I'll call him red So um, there were few jobs at the time available to blacks, very few. The day would come when his family was so poor that they would eat the whole out of a donut, he said. Mm. One day his father didn't come home in time. And when they were alerted by local authorities, Malcolm's mother went to the hospital where her husband's skull was crushed in and he was nearly torn in half. His father lived nearly two hours in that condition because, according to Malcolm, Negroes were stronger back then. Mm hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm inclined to agree. Mm-hmm. Everybody was stronger yeah. back then. <laughs> yeah. Had to be. Yeah. Yeah. His mother was now left with eight children and no provider. Um, the insurance company that his father um, had commissioned didn't want to pay because they claimed his father committed suicide, bashing in his own head wow. and tearing his own self in half um, by laying across a railroad track. Wow. So his mother, because she looked white, took jobs in white people's homes, cooking, cleaning and mending until inevitably her employer found out whose widow she was and she was fired on the spot. Repeatedly, this happened. She come home in tears. At times they were so hungry, they were dizzy. Malcolm started stealing food every now and then, and eventually he fell into a habit of mischievousness. Neglected and overwhelmed, Malcolm's mother, um, she start, her mind started to slip in and out, and Child Protective Services placed Malcolm in the house of a family that they knew. 
Malcolm got along fine with the family, but he missed his own family. Mm -hmm. They all needed each other, especially now to to think that his mother had lost her husband by violence. Her husband was murdered coldly. And then um, every job she took, these menial jobs, she was well educated. And she would beg just to clean their homes and they would fire her when they realized she was black and whose widow she was. And then they took her children away. This is a time when that whole family needed each other even more. Um, and the government had provisions in place, quote unquote, provisions to make sure they didn't have each other. Um, and that left Malcolm with a bitter taste in his mouth too. that situation. Um, so Malcolm is sharp. Um, However, and even though even through all of this, he's learning life lessons, things like any any gambler that's always winning isn't gambling. He's cheating. (laughs) Another life lesson. lesson. (laughs) Another life lesson. Anytime you find someone more successful than you are, especially if you're both in the same business, they are doing something you're not per. And Malcolm said that per. (laughs) A lot of people think it was JT. It was Malcolm. Per that's it. That's, that's it. it. His his mother was eventually committed to a state mental hospital, and a judge, a white man, was now in charge of a black man's children. Of course, mm-hmm. they were state children. Yep. Legal modern slavery with good intentions. That's how Malcolm saw it. Yep. Years later, by the way, they got their mother out of the hospital, and she lived with one of her children. Um, the last time Malcolm visited his mother in the hospital, when he was twenty seven, she didn't even recognize him. It broke him on the deepest level. Knowing how his family got to this point filled Malcolm with rage. He decided never to go back to that place for fear he'd choose a violent path. He was never going to see his mother in that hospital again. Um, see how To see how society tore his family down and then apart and then crushed them completely was just too much. Before his final visit, when he was 13, Malcolm was sent to a detention home because of his, because of his behavior. He was like a terrible kid. In detention, he received the first private bedroom he ever had in his life, his own room. He'd eat with the family who ran the home. They were white. Um, They liked Malcolm so much that they like adopted him figuratively as their mascot. So um, this is a situation that terrible. Yeah. But can you understand it clearly? Mm -hmm. Or perhaps you have um, been adopted as a mascot yourself before having to let people know, hey, hey, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. I don't tolerate this. And so by that, we mean they disparage black people constantly right in front of him because they didn't see him as black. They saw him as like their (laughs) African-American. It seemed not to dawn upon them that he wasn't a pet. He was a human boy with a mind and understanding. It was a kindly condescension. He was then sent to a proper school where he was very popular, a novelty. You know, this is a black boy, a lighter skinned black boy with red hair. Everyone loves Malcolm. Yeah. <laughs> he he felt like a pink poodle. Well, <laughs> now he looks back at it like he was a pink poodle. At the time he was happy being liked because right. he was a kid. Um, the teacher would call the teachers would call him nigger with affection. With affection. Just pause there. Everyone wanted him to go join them in some endeavor or another. In history class, the teacher would tell racist jokes and sing racist songs. Um, black history was a paragraph long, as you mentioned before, and filled with talk about how lazy and shiftless blacks are. Right. Mm, mm, mm. However, his grades, Malcolm's grades, were some of the highest of the school. And he was even elected class president in seventh grade. This is crazy. He was, according to Malcolm, 
brainwashed. <laughs> he was living it up, you know, staying yeah. with a white family. And yeah, they would definitely um, say terrible things about black people in front of him. But he was treated well. He had his own room for the first time. His grades were good. He was class president. Life was great. Did he say he um, tried to not he couldn't hide his blackness, but it. No, 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 did. no. What did he say about that? Um, so what I remember most is that there just wasn't another black person in his world at this time. And uh, he just liked all of the kind attention, mm-hmm. seemingly kind kindness. You I know, have to that, think about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. If it comes to you, a specific quote, please interrupt me because um, I want to know. OK. So um, but then the direness of his situation came to light. Young Malcolm wanted to become a lawyer when he grew up. A perhaps well-meaning teacher advised him against it. You know, one of the greatest things we can be in life is realistic and niggers can't be lawyers, Malcolm, Mm. you know, be realistic. And that stuck with him even at the time that rubbed him the wrong way in a manner that he couldn't shake. Eventually, Malcolm found his way to the home of his father's oldest daughter from a previous marriage, a woman named Ella. Ella was a big, proud black woman, as jet black as her brother, Malcolm's father, was. She spoke her mind and was an entrepreneur, a kind woman. She also gathered the kids to visit their mother um, in the institution she was in. This was the only visit Malcolm remembers not ending with feelings of hopelessness because Ella was there and she she put a different spin on it. She made everything positive she was a solution driven woman not a problem oriented one Um, so that really had a great effect on Malcolm Ella arranged to become Malcolm's legal caretaker and sent him to live with her and her family as he asked eventually in Boston Ella was a force she made him proud to be both black and a little their last name was little don't look for a job right away, Ella said. Mm. Get acquainted with the city and then we'll find you work. I like Malcolm, that outlook. I know. That's like the best. She was also well-to-do, working on her almost third husband. She could keep <laughs> some money. She was not worried about keeping a man. <laughs> Ella was like her own little island of a person. Mm-hmm. So she's like, yeah, baby, you can come live with me and don't look for work. We're going to get you something respectable, you know. So while you're not working, see the city. This is the only opportunity you'll ever have to really discover Boston. Malcolm was intent, though, to work immediately. He didn't want to be a burden on anybody. And that was his thought as he looked inside of a pool hall from the bar's window. Out comes a guy named Shorty. Shorty ended up being from Lansing, just like Malcolm. They were instant friends. It was Shorty who helped Malcolm look and sound less country. Um, he showed him how to rely on credit too <laughs> you could get anything you want you ain't got no money because <laughs> one of the ways he was going to help Malcolm look less uh, country was to get him all the clothes that he needed to get whether or not he was working <laughs> he showed him how to wear a zoot suit and those are like clown suits actually I shouldn't say that because some people still wear them yes come on now And I'm not going to mention which neighborhood they come from, but some of them are our friends. These are these are suits that have an oversized look and they go like almost down to your knees and they're a little billowy baggier and they have chains and trap doors. You know, you might not have a pocket watch, but you can have a pocket watch chain. And that was fine. Um, it was also it was also and no judgment that that's style um it was also shorty who um put the first conch in malcolm's hair 
What's a conch, you say? It's a hair relaxer, but this is an old school hair relaxer, so it's almost pure lie. Pure now, if you've lie. Ever, <laughs> pure if you, lie, okay? My goodness. Black people, come mm-hmm. here. You ever have you ever have your hair relaxed and you know how it feel like your skull is on fire and oh, your brain about to slip out? Fire. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've well, been it's, there. It's, it's that times 50 because this was, like we said, almost pure lie. But the longer you could stand it, the straighter your hair would be. So men would sit in chairs squirming and crying to, as Malcolm sees it now, erase their heritage. Erase their heritage. <laughs> Malcolm Hmm. is tough on himself, okay? Yeah. So Malcolm's getting a name now with the lower class Negro community. Nothing like the snooty fake people from Ella's neighborhood who put on airs to sound more white. And he learns how to dance, a secret talent his body was holding that he didn't even know he possessed. You know, I love how he (laughs) describes that. Yeah, I love it. He was like, all black people know how to dance. They just keep the, and they're inhibited when they arrive. People. Well, he was saying, you know, there are these stereotypes about black people that we like seasoning and that we like to dance. That's all true. That's what he <laughs> and said. we good at it too. <laughs> so he said there so, are these differences between us. I've seen them. <laughs> so while working at the local ice cream parlor, a job his sister Ella did eventually make him take, he met a girl named Laura, and Laura was a bookish church girl raised by her grandmother. Week after week, she'd order something and sit quietly reading while enjoying her treat. Malcolm was like really noticing her because she looked like beautiful and clean and stuff. (laughs) So Malcolm eventually got her to join him at a dance. And that was when they went to these halls and did like swing dancing. It was called Lindy Hopper. Um, But it was those dances where you use your whole body and you throwing people in the air, swinging swinging them Mm -hmm. around and having fun. You know, people don't dance no more. It's sad. Uh, when Ella met Laura, a good, clean Negro girl, there were wedding bells in her eyes. She was looking at Malcolm in them zoo suits and conk, and she was thinking, he ain't never going to be nobody. But when he <laughs> showed up to the house with Laura, Ella was like, yay. So Laura lied to her grandmother about where she was going and snuck out to dance with Malcolm. She was the perfect partner. She felt so light to him. But when he started dancing with other partners, she got quiet and stopped talking to him. Um, and then when she come to the ice cream shop, she wouldn't even like look at him or she she wouldn't come at all. And Malcolm's like, whatever. <laughs> I also get the feeling that Laura wasn't the only girl Malcolm was spending time with at the time. Um, but Malcolm gave her, you know, the space she needed to tell him what was on her mind or not, whatever. And thinking back, <laughs> thinking back, he says he wished he would have looked intently at her face while they were dancing because maybe then he would have seen evidence of the lifestyle she would later choose. Mm. There was this thought that if you looked into a girl's face while she's lost in dance, you could see what kind of woman she really was. Wow. But anyway, I'm not gonna say that ain't true. That sounded about right. So anyway, Laura approached about the truth of that. I, I know. I mean, that's got some, you know, that got some yeah, weight to it a little bit. I think so. So Laura, <laughs> Laura was like, okay, fine. I'm done giving you the silent treatment. Um, she approached Malcolm again and asked that he take her to the next Lindy Hopper dance. She wasn't going to lie this time. And she told her grandmother uh, what she was doing and where she was going. And they had a big fight. When Malcolm showed up, the woman didn't say anything to him. So he didn't say nothing either. Malcolm is rude. Okay. Yeah, now that definitely, I, I, that's exactly what I said when I read that. <laughs> How rude. 
Yeah, because he looks terrible. It's like um, this big I old think baggy I remember that, suit on. It's like when Moesha dad opened the door and Q showed up and Moesha dad was like, we're better than this. Well, that's how the grandmother is, except she's coming from a good place. And now today, as he's telling his story, Malcolm's like, I would have felt the same way had anyone who looked like me showed up to my house asking for my daughter. Mm -hmm. So his heart really goes out to the grandma. But at the time he was like, she ain't gonna talk to me. I ain't gonna talk to her. Whatever. <laughs> so at the dance, Laura showed up and showed out. She kept up with all the other girls and even outshined a few. When Malcolm and Laura exited the dance floor, get this, y'all, Duke Ellington, that Duke Ellington, half rose from his stool and gave her a nod. Mm. Malcolm ain't got no reason to lie. This is the truth. Document it. Look it up. <laughs> it was time for the next dance and Laura had more than proven herself. But that's when Malcolm saw the most beautiful white woman he'd ever seen staring at him from across the room. She looked like money and she was gorgeous. He dropped Laura off at home and ran back to pick up Sophia. Mm. That was her name. They began spending days and nights together. Girl, he takes Sophia any and everywhere and she'd pay the way wherever they went. She was crazy about black men and she was crazy about Malcolm. At this point, I think Malcolm was as affectionate with her as he could be with any woman. Um, he's a very selfish person um, and he doesn't give us any any reason to believe he ever loved Sophia. But I have no, to say whatsoever. that they but they stuck together. Um, if you take romance out of it, at least you can admit they were like, if Shorty was his best friend, then Sophia was number two. Right, right. You know, Cause they, as long as they were together and the things that they did together, surely there was some affection in there. Or lust, maybe. I mean, they weren't bettering each other, but they were crazy about each other. They were. And Malcolm isn't going to say it, but I think that they were crazy like about each other. toxic relationships. Yeah, yeah. You know, great fun. At this point, I think Malcolm was, <laughs> was like, uh, you know, too selfish to be in love with anyone. And he never respected any woman, I think, outside of Ella and his mom. Uh, maybe his sisters. So the next time he saw, heard about Laura... She was in and out of jail and prostituting herself for drugs. He blames himself personally for his for her demise. Um, so throughout this book, you're going to hear things that sound misogynistic because they are. Also, please remember the people in your family who you love very much who are also misogynists. That's Malcolm. He's your misogynistic uncle. <laughs> this girl completely lost her way and ended up on drugs. And he can't believe even to this day that he let that happen. That's, um, that's something. Still with Sophia, he took a train job that took him um, all the way to New York. And when he visited Harlem for the first time, his jaw hit the floor. The black people there weren't putting on airs like the uppity folks back home in Ella's neighborhood. They had sincere style and genuine class. They carried themselves in a way Malcolm had never seen from either white or black folks. Here was the nest of like art, music, fashion yes. and black expression wow. during a time that will that has never been repeated. Oh, you know, this is. He, he he was in the middle of it. He'd visit the Apollo Theater yeah. to see Diana Washington sing. And years later, they become close friends. He was home. And Sophia told him, you won't be happy anywhere but Harlem. 
She was supporting him, his ambition. They were still seeing each other whenever he was in Boston, every other day almost. So they, you know, they were still seeing each other often. But New York was heaven to him and Harlem was seventh heaven. His red conch was shining and his his best friend was still shorty and notable musicians. Malcolm was 16 years old, passing as 21. And he went by red for his famous conch, as we said. His hair relaxer that was like all curled up or whatever. Profanity was his preferred language and zoot suits were his uniform. He was a clown, unaware of the circus. (laughs) (laughs) He thought he looked good and people, again, white and black, would stop and stare at him in the street. And he was like, yeah, I see you looking. I looked at you looking at me looking. Okay, because I'm looking good. (laughs) Looking back, he just laughs like I was brainwashed. Mm-hmm. He learned the hustles of Harlem. This included armed robbery, pimping and gambling. Um, there was a community of outcasts and there was a code amongst this community. They looked out for each other um, and, you know, without trusting anyone. It should be emphasized that Harlem wasn't full of these people or even crime. But this is the life that appealed to Malcolm. The day finally came for Sophia to call Red and tell him she was married. She married a stable white man with her um you know, who her family would be okay with, with her family's blessing. And this re- arrangement was to do n- nothing to change what her and Malcolm had going yeah. on. She was just like, you know, what did you do today? Well, I got married. Okay, cool. I expected you to get married one day. Yep, I did. Okay, yeah. I'm going to see you next Thursday. Yep, I'll see you then. Yeah. Real regular. Okay. Real regular. Mm-hmm. That, that was the Although routine. it does sound like he was kind of saddened by it or he felt away, but whatever. I don't think Sophie, so. I don't think okay. so. He don't think so either. So with (laughs) Sophia on his arm and his own bravado, Red became known as Detroit Red. There there was another Red at the time, so he had to be Detroit Red. The other um, man, a funny man, was known as Chicago Red. And he was so talented at comedy that he later found success as a professional musician. Alexis, who was Chicago Red? You said a musician. Oh, I'm sorry, comedian. He found success as a professional comedian. Chicago Red. Red Fox. Yep. So Malcolm started selling marijuana to the big band members in his area, traveling up and down the East Coast using his train pass, which no one bothered to double check because he wasn't keeping his train job. (laughs) Folks was at war. Jobs needed to be filled. He like take a train job sometimes and just keep the pass (laughs) so he could hop on the train and sell drugs up and down the East Coast. Eventually, though, the draft came knocking. Oh, boy. It's the draft. At this point, Red was no longer dressing in lousy suits, but more conservative style clothing. And there's a funny part where he walks into a bar in this big old zoot suit, probably yellow. And one of the hustlers is like, he just look at him. He like, no. You're, so the right. next you time. You can't do that. That's not what we do here. <laughs> the next, this is Harlem. Mm-hmm. Get it together. Mm-hmm. So the next time Red walks into that same bar, there's a suit waiting for him on the counter. Don't pay me. Just, you know, payment to me is not having to look at your Z suit. That's how the hustler felt. So Red was understanding he needed to change up his style. So also, he was, you know. They took like measurements. It was a um, tailored it was suit. A, and a, Yes. Yeah. He had learned that in order to get something, you had to look like you had something. Mm-hmm. And that applied to hustling people, too. Um, but when the draft notice came, he put on the loudest zoo suit he owned <laughs> and paraded the streets talking loudly about he couldn't how he couldn't wait to join the army. The Japanese army. <laughs> 
<laughs> so to anybody that would listen, he would talk about how he couldn't wait to join the Japanese army. Um, he still ended up in the draft line, though. They was like, yeah, OK, whatever. We're on to you. And then and he ended up in front of the army psychiatrist and continuing his theatrics. He looked under the door in the psychiatrist's <laughs> office and then whispered into the man's ear. Hey, daddy, don't you tell nobody. I want to get sent down south. Organize those Negro soldiers. You dig? Steal us some guns and kill us some crackers. <laughs> the psychiatrist starts shaking and making a note in a red pen. And it was it wasn't long before Detroit Red uh, received his rejection letter from the army in the mail. He was like, great. Mm -hmm. He then started escorting Johns to those who would fulfill their bizarre appetites. Um, this was another hustle. These Johns were the Ivy League graduates now working as judges, lawyers, doctors, all white men. They came to Harlem to take off their like sanitized masks and do what they knew they never be judged for. Not in Harlem, not by black people. We can do every, you know, I'm a judge, disgusting thing we want to do. Mm -hmm. And who's the wiser? These are just black people. Malcolm was shocked to see like the high and mighty act so low. And while in jail, he wondered what a psychiatrist would think of everything he saw. He also noticed a particularly brazen brand of depravity among the rich, white and influential that he never seen among even the poorest black communities. Um, and a lot of that goes with access and a feeling of entitlement. Eventually, he started gambling. He'd run numbers through West Indian Archie, a math genius who could remember the numbers he collected before turning them in. He'd spend the day collecting numbers from people uh, West Indian Archie would, never writing anything down and then repeating those numbers accurately along with who placed the bet at the end of the day. Mm. What An a unheard mind. of talent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that talent would have made him a celebrated success in the world had he not been who he was, where he was. But one day, Malcolm asked to be paid on a number West Indian Archie didn't remember him playing. And there was a bigger issue here. It was Malcolm trying to ruin West Indian Archie's reputation. A solid rep was all a man had in most cases. And young, high yellow, redheaded Malcolm was trying to take that from West Indian Archie, maybe. Of course, the only logical response from Archie was to threaten Malcolm's life. And he gave him a time and a day to pay the money back. Um, Malcolm was scared blind. He had no idea at this point. <laughs> scared blind. Yeah. At this point, he like, did I lie? I don't know. I think that was my number. Was it not my number? He don't know who's right at this point. All he wanted to do was get as high as possible and avoid being murdered. Like a fool, I didn't leave the bar. I stayed there sitting like a bigger fool with my back to the door, thinking about West Indian Archie. Since that day, I have never sat with my back to a door, and I never will again. But it's a good thing I was then. I'm positive if I'd seen West Indian Archie come in, I'd have shot to kill. The next thing I knew, West Indian Archie was standing before me, cursing me, loud, his gun on me. He was really making his public point, floor showing for the people. He called me foul names, threatened me. Everyone, bartenders and customers, sat or stood as they carved drinks in midair. The jukebox in the rear was going. I had never seen West Indian Archie high before. Not a whiskey high. I could tell it was something else. I knew the hustler's characteristic of keying up on dope to do a job. I was thinking, I'm going to kill Archie. I'm just going to wait until he turns around to get the drop on him. I could feel my own 32 resting against my ribs, 
where it was tucked under my belt beneath my coat. West Indian Archie seemed to be reading my mind, quit cursing, and his words jarred me. You're thinking you're going to kill me first, Red, but I'm going to give you something to think about. I am 60. I'm an old man. I've been to Sing Sing. My life is over. You're a young man. Kill me. You're lost anyway. All you can do is go to prison. I've since thought that West Indian Archie may have been trying to scare me into running to save both his face and his life. It may be that's why he was high. No one knew that I hadn't killed anyone, but no one who knew me, including myself, would doubt that I'd kill. I can't guess what might have happened, but under the cold, if West Indian Archie had gone out of the door after having humiliated me as he had, I'd have had to follow him out. We'd have shot it out in the street. But some friends of West Indian Archie moved up alongside him, quietly calling his name, Archie, Archie, and he let them put their hands on him, and they drew him aside. I watched them move him past where I was standing, glaring at me. They were working him back toward the rear. Then, taking my time, I got down off the stool. I dropped a bill on the bar for the bartender. Without looking back, I went out. I stood outside in full view of the bar with my hand in my pocket for perhaps five minutes. When West Indian Archie didn't come out, I left. He took more drugs than he ever took in his life within the period of 24 hours, and he was completely out of his mind when a car pulled up and Shorty hopped out. It was known on the wire, which is like the informal way information traveled amongst people. Let me just say, when they were talking about the wire, I was like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And then I was like, wait a minute, what is the wire? And then I learned what the wire was. (laughs) (laughs) But it was effective. Mm -hmm. And it was known on the wire that there was um, a hit out on Red. So he was completely out of his mind, like we said, when Shorty uh, pulled up in a car and hopped out. Shorty had driven all the way to New York to save his friend Red's life. Everyone knew that there was a price on Red's head. So Malcolm hopped in a car on his way back to Boston. Mm -hmm. He terrified Shorty on the trip from New York to Boston by talking nonstop for hours like an insane person. He was was on a lot Mm -hmm. of drugs. Yeah. Um, Sophia and Shorty are not rehabilitating Red. And yes, Sophia is still married, but her husband is rarely home and she sticks close to Red. Um, Shorty's a musician now. He um, learned how to play, I think, the saxophone, one horn. Um, but he was broke, like most black musicians at the time, famous or not. And after a few weeks of inactivity and mild, albeit successful, gambling streaks, uh, Red earned a name for his hot temper, always ready to kill attitude. But he needed a job, a hustle. That's when he got into the idea to rob houses, to rob homes. Alexis, can you tell us a little bit more of this house robbery operation? <laughs> Yeah, so he set up this operation with him, Shorty, and the two, and then Sophia and Sophia's sister. Right. Right, and they were going to break into homes, get their goods, and sell them to an outside man, but you needed to keep it a certain way. The little people know about the situation, the better. The be- Yeah. And then he would, Yeah. he, um... Well, it was really and there was also a fifth guy in it, but we'll stick with these four main Mm -hmm. characters. So um, 
They would even go into people's homes while people slept and they especially love snores. Those <laughs> yes. were the easiest hits. Imagine going to sleep and then waking up and all your stuff is gone. Yeah, yeah. That's what they would do. And they usually um, plan them out very well, but sometimes they would just like, you know, try a house. And get their stuff Yeah, too. so so Sophia and her sister would stake out the house first, um, ring the doorbell on some like mission of saying that they were part of some organization. And then the householder would let them in and they would be looking all around the house for valuables. And then they'd leave and tell um, Malcolm and Shorty everything. And then the guys would come back later that night and know exactly where the valuables were to steal. And the homeowners were never really afraid to share all this and show off information to these young white girls. They, they told they them like everything. They like to do it. <laughs> so it was really yeah. easy. Uh, one thing Malcolm says is to always leave your bathroom light on oh, because yeah. people can be in a bathroom for an, you know, um, endless amount of time. And it's a sign that someone is there. And then there are always noises in the bathroom, whether it be pipes or something to scare off a burglar. Of course, he's saying this in like the 40s. So get you a, a home alarm system. <laughs> Today, um, <laughs> the suggestion is just get a, a ring light and an alarm system. A, yeah, a ring a light. Ring, you know she a, a blogger. A ring bell. A ring doorbell. <laughs> so moving on. Uh, one time some cops saw Shorty and Malcolm in a neighborhood that they had no business being in as far as the cops are concerned, passed them and then turned around in their car and Malcolm already knew they were spotted. So he was smart. He started flagging down the cop <laughs> Car, like, hey, 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 uh, can you please help us get back to the black side of town? And then the cops were like, oh, these Negroes. Oh, I shouldn't do an accent, but that's what happened. So anyway, right. they helped them, they, they helped them uh, get away. Um, and it, helped us, it happened a few times. They did help it them happened. get away. <laughs> because Malcolm's reasoning was that no white man would ever think you could outsmart yeah. them. So you should just outsmart them. Um, and it happened a few times like this. So Sophia and her sister, um, one day though, walked into a bar in the black side of town with a friend of Sophia's husband. Ooh. The man wanted to hang out in the Negro side of town, as he, of course, would call it at the time. But he didn't know that Sophia and her sister were like, Regulars. well, no. <laughs> Regulars. So Red walked in and everyone's giving him a weird look like, be cool. And he foolishly walks up to the table, calls the women, calls Sophia baby. (laughs) And so Sophia's beat Red and the man is furious. That friend follows Red back to his house, um, sees the stolen clothes and goods left by the women. And the next day, the husband even comes to the house with a gun. But Red was already in custody. Mm -hmm. In the end, his crime and Shorty's crime um, that they were booked for and convicted of was hanging out with white women. (laughs) So they got him for this thievery charge, but they gave him and Red, uh, Shorty and Red, eight to 10 years each in prison for 14 counts of crime. That was unheard of for this this type of uh, criminal activity. Yeah, because they got like five years or something. Yeah, so the girls got one to five years in a reformatory. In the end, Malcolm would serve seven years. Part two, the bars and the books. One thing he remembers most about prison are the bars. Um, No matter what you remember about your experience in prison, he says the bars you cannot forget. They are what give you the PTSD Mm. because that is the animalistic structure of prison. It it really does something to who you are inside as a human. Um, Malcolm was known as the devil by fellow prisoners because of his attitude, actions, and atheism. 
Some were even afraid of him. He was headstrong, violent, angry, lost. Ella gets him transferred to a new facility with this radical program where um, prisoners were treated less like animals. They even uh, were instructed by um, professors from Harvard and such. Um, And so it was here that Malcolm began to study Islam under the tutelage of his brother. His family, they were converting to the nation of Islam, um, which is like a derivative of Islam. Um, And one by one, they were converting and then they wanted him to convert, of course. Mm -hmm. This included this um, religion included dietary requirements and an understanding about white people that made sense to Malcolm at the time. Think of all white people he'd ever known or read about the men who tormented his family and later killed his father, the social workers who called his mother crazy and denied her the ability to provide for her family until she lost her mind. The workers who tore their family apart, the family that took him into their home as long as he'd be their mascot, uh, the teacher who hindered his intellectual growth by insisting that Negroes can never be lawyers, the teacher who confined black American history to one paragraph and a racist joke, the cops who chased him um, or chastised and chased him while secretly breaking the law in private, the government officials who suppressed um, his race or oppressed his race, the judge who gave him an exaggerated sentence, the prison guards, um, the undeniable but often denied horror of the specific brand of slavery carried out by America and African humans. Why were these people evil? Every last one of them. Because Malcolm was taught and accepted the white man is the devil. For years, he attributed any mistreatment by white people to that former, what he understood as fact. Mm-hmm. As Malcolm learned the deeper teaching accepted by his family at at this time um, who had all converted, he too accepted this teaching eagerly. It was only later after visiting Mecca years later that he learned those Muslims hated these teachings. And um, there he blamed them for not making known the original form of Islam to followers in the West so that misguided teachers could steer steer millions to lies. Elijah Muhammad was accepted as the earthly leader of God's people on earth, the messenger of Allah. Malcolm wrote to him and received a letter back with a $5 bill from the man himself that had a huge impression on him. He also began wanting to better himself, starting with his brain. He read the dictionary, repeating words, writing down words he didn't even know existed in the world. The library in this um, radical prison was extensive and he was trying to read every book they owned. Months passed without Malcolm even thinking of the prison he was in. It was like he was free in his mind because he was so absorbed in books. There were books on any subject and he was trying to read them all. He began proselytizing both religion and history to his fellow prisoners. For many black prisoners, they wouldn't believe the truth about African history until Malcolm also showed it to them in a book written by a white man. Things like the scientific and artistic advancements made by civilizations in the continent of Africa before the arrival of Europeans, things that are glanced over sometimes in school or not taught at all. Uh, Malcolm could easily reference in an encyclopedia or some book of worldly knowledge and show them. And they were shocked, you know, or they would like tell him like, you know, he called them those that would go back and tell about the education he was spreading uh, brainwashed. Um, It filled him with sadness 
but also determination to see how blind black Americans were to their own past, their own origins. And he dedicated his life to the education of black people as he saw it. He also dedicated himself to telling the white man about himself. He joined debate groups and would go back and forth with moderators from top universities. Um, He was a thinker and he was finally connected to something that intrigued thought. It should be emphasized that everything Malcolm experienced in his life, all of the pain and injustice made the clarity he now thought he'd found about race, um, about race relations, Mm -hmm. overpoweringly seductive race and history, the past, the future. They were all connected for him and that he couldn't discuss one without discussing the other. Everything was brought back to race and race relations in his mind. And later in life, his views changed. Anyone who knows about Malcolm X knows that, but not until he was betrayed by the man he looked to as Earth's divine messenger. So, reader, hold the judgment and try to understand his mind um, at this time in his shoes with his history and not to be sitting in jail for presumably a decade for a theft that earned others, you know, two years of time. How would you have felt? What would you have thought? What would you have made it your goal Um to do would you have read every book on the shelf that you could get your hands on um you know and would you have read all of this anthropological history that malcolm absorbed or would you have sunk into despair and hopelessness malcolm was too indomitable for despondency whatever he was going to do in life he was going to do it with every molecule of his body he spoke to his brother one day and found that his brother had been expelled by the nation of islam by Elijah Muhammad himself for an affair that his brother Reginald had carried out with one of the temple secretaries. This ate away at Malcolm and he wrote Elijah um, pleading for his brother. Elijah Muhammad wrote back, if you once believed the truth and now you are doubting, then you never believed in the first place. Remember this reader. The day would come When Elijah Muhammad would be accused by his own sons of the same acts of immorality for which he condemned Malcolm's brother, Reginald, Reginald eventually lost his mind and was institutionalized. Malcolm saw this downfall of his brother at the time as divine judgment. Now, however, as he's telling the story, he sees clearer and believes it was likely his family's turning against him, all for Elijah Muhammad, that drove his brother to insanity. Moving on. Malcolm was released on parole. Shorty, too, was coming up for parole. Yay. Malcolm's Mm -hmm. oldest brother (laughs) was able to arrange for his employment as proof that he'd be a good citizen once released. Shorty was having trouble finding such support for his parole. Um, But while in prison, by the way, Shorty studied music um, and musical composition. And he'd even written a few works, including one named the Bastille Concerto. His family, Malcolm's family, uh, wanted Malcolm to come to Detroit and join a temple there. Malcolm first stopped in Boston to see Ella. She wanted Malcolm to find success in whatever he did. She really wanted the best for him. She was a wonderful sister. Incredible and a strong like force in his Mm -hmm. life um, throughout his life. So Malcolm began working. Even when they were at odds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Even when they were at odds. Yeah, which definitely happened a few times in his life. She was still in his corner. Um, He began working and saw with new eyes how so many close, um, how so many chose to stay in like a pseudo enslavement by depending on credit to buy things they didn't need and shouldn't have wanted. Meanwhile, the business owners would pocket millions and form like a, a legacy of wealth. 
while these dependent on credit would be penniless. And the, the, he made the his, stuff they were selling was poor quality too. It was stuff they never should have wanted. <laughs> but they saw it as uh, if you had this thing that you've made it in right. the world. He made his way soon to Detroit and was amazed by the orderliness of his brother's home, the modesty of the man's wife and the manners of his children. He saw black men greet each other with both hands, calling one another brother and treating women with more respect than he had ever displayed or seen anyone display. Even the children acted this way. It was just beautiful to Malcolm. And so he felt he had no choice but to proselytize and spread the word to save other blacks in the communities um, from themselves and their brainwashing. And then Malcolm saw him, Elijah Muhammad, this man that he almost worshiped. The man spoke with a mild voice, but with determination. He mixed his race and the future of humanity, these topics seamlessly. So this was the only man who had written personally to Malcolm and touched him like to his core. He was there. He was human, but otherworldly somehow to Malcolm. You know, you never think of people like this, but this is how this is how he Mm -hmm. felt. And remember, too, he's never had a father figure and he's always been craving some direction. And by following this man, he saw evidence of improvement in his life that he could point to. It really opened up something that was already in him that no one else took the time to access or to help him access. Malcolm then took the last name X. He was no longer Malcolm Little. The X represents the true name of his family that he will never know. And in fact, black Americans largely do not know because of the inhuman, inhumane acts of slavery and its methodic erasure of our original home language and even name. Malcolm began recruiting with steady success. This pleased Mr. Muhammad, who wanted to see the teaching spread in other cities. We did not land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Surprise! He caught the eye of the FBI, who sent an agent to his job. They asked him to register for the Korean War. Malcolm submitted papers saying he was a conscientious objector. Mm. They asked if he even knew what that meant. Malcolm replied that uh, when a white man asked me to go off and fight, and maybe died to preserve the way the white man treated the black man in America, then my conscience made me object. (laughs) (laughs) So do you understand? (laughs) Do you get it? Do you understand Mm -hmm. what conscientious objection is? I, I can't even say it. Malcolm later went to save as he saw it, his former friends. Shorty was a musician now and they caught up discussing old times. But when the subject shifted, um, Shorty made it clear. Listen, listen, listen. Hey, 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 hold up. <laughs> All that Muhammad is carrying on. I love white women and pork way too much to be talking about this. So do you want to go smoke some drugs or not? Because I need to know. I got a show to get to. So Malcolm was like, well, we ain't going to be friends no more. And I really love you. But they they didn't really see each other much after that. Then Malcolm went to find West Indian Archie, the same man who had run him out of Harlem, out of New York City, out of the state so many years ago. He found the man's address and West Indian Archie let him in. Now, we didn't really go into this, but West Indian Archie was a sharp dresser, a wise man who spoke clearly. Um. He was just a man to be admired at the time. So when he lets Malcolm in, 
West Indian Archie was sick now. He was old and he was pitiful. He wore wrinkled pajamas. This man who always stayed immaculately styled. He now looked at Malcolm and beamed. Red, I'm so happy to see you. Malcolm all but hugged him. And remember, too, you know, he's always he was at the time looking for a a leader that he could um, follow, be inspired by. And even when West Indian Archie was threatened to kill him, he still respected him. He still respected West Indian Archie. So to see him in the state uh, was really it was hard on Malcolm. Um, He told him how uh, getting run out of Harlem saved his life. And they agreed that the numbers were not even worth talking about. Mm -hmm. Neither could remember who was right anyway. They don't know who was right. Um, So Malcolm felt himself getting overcome with emotion. And so he made Archie accept some money and then he left. It was clear Archie's end was near. Death was almost at his door. So one day Malcolm met Betty an instructor, an instructor of um, one of the nation's classes for women. Betty was also near to completing her secular training to be a nurse. Malcolm was intent to remain single in order to better assist Mr. Muhammad. <laughs> we laughing because we don't believe any of this, but he really tries to sell it. He does. He really um, does. <laughs> you know, he hasn't been with a woman in 12 yeah. years. He's trying to devote himself to his faith. Yeah. Um He invited Betty to the Museum of Natural History. Why? (laughs) To convince her um, that the pig is disgusting. That's why we don't eat it. For real. Give her some history behind things so that she could teach the classes that she, the women's classes that she was teaching even better. (laughs) He totally believes this is why. He was (laughs) impressed. Listen. I was halfway impressed by her intelligence and education. That's what this man said. (laughs) And then he started thinking of marriage, just all out of the blue. If he, (laughs) if he did choose to get married, Betty was of proper height compared to him. And she was the right age. (laughs) Can I just tell you? Um, She's childbearing age. And let's see what else is there. She's really smart. Um, uh huh. Yeah, I think yeah. She, this would make sense. This makes sense. <laughs> yeah, logically, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, Mr. Muhammad had told them that the right age of a woman for a man to marry her is half the man's age plus seven. We just gonna let that sit. <laughs> so, so <laughs> figuring in the calculations, Betty was suitable for real, y'all. This is what That's he's thinking. What so he calls her one day and asks if she wants to be married, convinced, convinced that she already knew he'd ask. She agrees and they are hastily married. Mm-hmm. Now, she, she knew already. <laughs> Is, were you uh-huh. ready to say that? Women always yeah. know. He don't really. Yeah, he's never really trusted a woman outside of his family, as we said before. Um, but at this point in his telling of his story, Malcolm wants us to know something. He wants us to know that he loves Betty and that his love is not superficial. He loves her deeper than her beauty, which she indeed does have. The aspects of her personality that only get better with time, though, that's what he's in love with. She's the only woman he ever even thought of loving and the only one he's ever trusted. Okay, Malcolm, we believe Mm -hmm. you. Calm down. I mentioned you will remember how in a big city, a sizable organization can remain practically unknown unless something happens that brings it to the general public's attention. Well, certainly no one in the Nation of Islam had any anticipation of the kind of thing that would happen in Harlem one night. 
two white policemen breaking up a street scuffle between some Negroes ordered other Negro passersby to move on. Of these bystanders, two happened to be Muslim brother Johnson Hinton and another brother of Temple Seven. They didn't scatter and run the way the white cops wanted. Brother Hinton was attacked with nightsticks. His scalp was split open and a police car came and he was taken to a nearby precinct. The second brother telephoned our restaurant and with some telephone calls in less than half an hour, about 50 of Temple Seven's men of the Fruit of Islam were standing in ranks formation outside the police precinct house. Other Negroes, curious, came running and gathered in excitement behind the Muslims. The police coming to the station house front door and looking out of the windows couldn't believe what they saw. I went in as the minister of Temple Seven and demanded to see our brother. The police first said he wasn't there. Then they admitted he was, but said I couldn't see him. I said that until he was seen and we were sure he received proper medical attention, the Muslims would remain where they were. They were nervous and scared of the gathering crowd outside. When I saw our brother Hinton, it was all I could do to contain myself. He was only semi-conscious. Blood had bathed his head and face and shoulder. I hope I never again have to withstand seeing another case of sheer police brutality like that. I told the Lieutenant in charge, that man belongs in the hospital. They called an ambulance. When it came and Brother Hinton was taken to Harlem Hospital, we Muslims followed in loose formations for about 15 blocks along Lenox Avenue, probably the busiest through affair in Harlem. Negroes who had never seen anything like this were coming out of stores and restaurants and bars and enlarging the crowd following us. The crowd was big and angry. Behind the Muslims in front of Harlem Hospital, Harlem's black people were long since sick and tired of police brutality. They never had seen any organization of black men take a firm stand as we were. A high police official came up to me saying, get those people out of there. I told him that our brothers were standing peacefully, disciplined, perfectly, and harming no one. He told me those others behind them weren't disciplined. I politely told him those others were his problem. When doctors assured us that Brother Hinton was receiving the best of care, I gave the order and the Muslims slipped away. The other Negroes' mood was ugly, but they dispersed also when we left. We wouldn't learn until later that a steel plate would have to be put into Brother Hinton's skull. After that operation, the Nation of Islam helped him to sue. A jury awarded over $70,000, the greatest police brutality judgment that New York City has ever paid. The Nation was now front of mind for law enforcement and locals alike. A television program was made featuring interviews and footage with Nation members and Mr. Muhammad. It was titled The Hate That Hate Produced. It, it was sensationalized and the fear spread among mainstream media and even some prominent black leaders spoke against the nation. Why do you hate the white man? Reporters would ask incredulously. Malcolm would respond with scathing fire. The wolf is in no moral position to accuse the sheep of hate. When my ancestors are snake bitten and I am snake bitten and I warn my children to avoid snakes. What does that snake sound like accusing me of hate teaching? No reporter wanted to debate Malcolm about history. In fact, they'd mention how Lincoln freed the slaves and he'd bring up things Lincoln said in speeches against black people. In truth, Lincoln wanted to free to um, save as much of slavery as possible while conserving his union. So that's easy to find. Anyway, um, his words were then twisted by writers in the press. He also felt attacked by Negro leaders. Today's Uncle Tom wears a top hat, he said. He is the personification of culture and refinement. He is known as professor, doctor, judge, and even reverend doctor. Mm. 
He explained the need for separation, but not segregation. Segregation implies that another was in control and that someone decides what opportunities come to your life. Separation was the need for people to go back to their original place. And this is what he believes again at the time. To Malcolm at the time, it was simple for black men to beg for integration, for them to be pacifists, to lay at the feet of white men, to sit in at their diners was shameful and redundant. Look at us. We're all evidence of centuries of imposed integration since the first boat of slave women were assaulted on their way um, from their homeland to the so-called new world. Now, when we decide to organize and speak for ourselves, integration is out of the question. They have not intended to treat us as human. It was never even crossed their mind. And so a new nation must be formed of black Americans free from oppression. This is his goal. And this is his thinking. Under the encouragement of Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm spoke more and more for the nation publicly. He particularly enjoyed speaking at colleges, including HBCUs, Hay Howard, and Ivy League schools like Harvard. And he never left without learning a way to improve his public speaking skills when he um when he moderated these sessions, he later learned that because Elijah Muhammad never felt comfortable himself speaking at a university, he envied Malcolm for his enthusiasm to do so. He'd explain how the slave owners would even manipulate their wives into this is Malcolm now at universities. He'd explain how slave owners would even manipulate their wives into believing they were too pure for the man's carnal desires. And in this way, convince them to look away as their property became filled with mixed children. Mm. Poor Poor white are made to believe that they are better than black and so not inferior to the wealthy who actually control both the poor and the black or at least oppress both the poor and the black. After speaking at one school, a blonde girl Southern asked him if he believed there were any good white people. Malcolm replied, people's deeds I believe in, not their words. Well, what can I do? She asked. Nothing. He responded. And she ran from him crying. But as Malcolm soared higher, gaining more fame, his wings began to melt under the jealous gazes of the people he loved the most. This illustration became literal as Malcolm found himself crossing the country sometimes four times a week in a plane provided by Elijah Muhammad himself and the Nation of Islam. But he was making no money. It wasn't part of the role of his job, of his mission to make money. Um, This was the cause of the only argument Malcolm ever had with his wife, Betty, that threatened their union. As they had more and more children, Betty wanted Malcolm to put funds away for their family's future. And he convinced her that the nation would care for her and the children if anything ever happened to him. He now realizes he was a fool. He could not have been a bigger fool, he says. Years ago, Malcolm started a publication, a journal promoting the nation. However, as envy against him rose, the paper printed nothing about him Um, there. And he was at the time their public spokesman. Um, Life magazine wanted to do a story on Malcolm and he refused wanting praise to go to Elijah Muhammad and his God. But it was too late. There was a price on Malcolm's head, not just by the Louisiana Citizens Council, a white supremacy organization, which did indeed call for his murder, but even a source close to home, too close. Malcolm, the spokesperson for the Nation of Islam, began speaking less about religion. The reason was his faith had been shaken to the core when he discovered who Elijah Muhammad was and what he'd been doing. When Mr. Muhammad was 67 years old, secretaries in their 20s initiated paternity Paternity. (laughs) suits against him. Thank you, Alexis. (laughs) And when it first happened, you know, it sounded insane to Malcolm, unthinkable. 
One after another, though, the women were um, sentenced by the nation's court to banishment, forbidden from having contact with any other Muslims. Malcolm thinks back to seeing his brother Reginald enter a restaurant. And when he saw him, Malcolm walked up to his own brother and told him he wasn't welcome. Out of loyalty to Mr. Muhammad, he did this. He hasn't seen his brother since that day. Malcolm has selflessly preached the word of Elijah Muhammad for years and years. I think like 12 years at this point, he felt disbelief, denial, and betrayal. He learned from these women that Mr. Muhammad was berating Malcolm in private, certain that one day soon Malcolm would betray him. But when Malcolm called JFK's assassination chickens coming home to roost, Mr. Muhammad silenced Malcolm for 90 days. Malcolm was crushed. Yeah, he saw that as an opportunity because all this negative talk he was doing about him and finally um, presented itself as an opportunity to set him up. And then talk of killing Malcolm began to spread and he caught wind of it. Talk like that could have come from only one man and it was unconscionable. Um, it was, it was an unconscionable reaction. Malcolm was being set up. The betrayal nearly broke his brain. He like went to see a psychiatrist too. He was, he, he, this was like a, the lowest point I'll say in his life. If there's a reverse climax, I don't know what that is. It's not really anti-climax, but this is the point in his story where, no, this is the climax. This is what everything really has been leading up to. Um, Also around this time, Malcolm and his family formed a strong friendship with a young, beautiful boxer who was a follower of Malcolm and his teaching. Do you know that man's name? A a follower of Elijah Muhammad and his teaching. Well, he he was a devoted follower of Malcolm. He would like show up at his speaking mm-hmm. events, even though he was a celebrity. That's what I mean. But yeah, Muhammad you're right. Muhammad right. Ali. Er, Cassius oh. Clay. So, <laughs> <part> three, <laughs> so, of course, that answer, your answer is correct. Um, part three, Mecca. So, um With all of this betrayal going on around him, he was feeling um, his faith shaken. He decided to take a trip to Mecca. Um, First, he entered Cairo and he saw honor, respect and decency among black, brown and fair skinned people. They seemed united to him. And then in Mecca um, or in that area, he saw mixed races worshiping together. For over a decade, Malcolm had claimed to be a Muslim. But when he made the pilgrimage, he learned that he didn't even know how to properly pray. The most basic, essential act of worship. He didn't know how to do that like a Muslim. When he arrived, he wasn't permitted to visit Mecca right away. Officials wanted to investigate this American so-called Muslim. Um, So they took his passport and he had to wait. You know, Um, he was like a man stranded in the ocean. He couldn't speak the language and he was just you know, waiting for approval that might not ever come. Unacquainted with the language and customs, he relied on the kindness of others while refusing to be a burden on anyone. So he'd buy his own food and things like that. But after a few days, he remembered a contact who might help. Um, After he made a call, a man came immediately to his side. The man was tall, imposing in structure and white. Malcolm at the time didn't even realize in the moment outside of the context of America that this man was white. He was just a man. The man asked Malcolm one question. Why didn't you call sooner? The man was connected to a royal family by marriage. He was wealthy. Um, 
He was someone of prestige, but he gave up his luxury suite and stayed with his son so that Malcolm could take it. He wanted Malcolm to have the best. He wanted to show him true hospitality, which is common um, in the Middle East and really baked into the culture. And realizing this and seeing this from a man that back home he would have thought of as white changed Malcolm forever. He prayed immediately. This man who had never met him before, this white man, Malcolm was overcome. There was no reason for this man to treat him with such kindness. Malcolm was known as a racist. Yeah. He believed the only time white people did stuff for you was if they wanted something, if they could get something out of you. And people knew what he had said about various uh, famous uh, people, Um, you know, and and some also saw the nation of Islam as a cloak for racism, like a, a betrayal of Islam itself. And still with all of that, this man, this stranger did everything for Malcolm, despite his reputation. This experience made Malcolm uh, reappraise the white man. And he made he began thinking more about attitudes and actions instead of skin color. It was a radical alteration of his understanding. But nowhere had he seen such a racially mixed people together doing anything together. He eventually did make it to Mecca and was forever changed, traveling through Africa afterward um, and speaking even to the Ghanaian parliament. He returned home with a new outlook. A blanket attitude toward all white people was no better than white people who looked down on all black people. But actions and facts condemn people no matter their color. A white man asked Malcolm if he'd shake a white man's hand. And Malcolm replied, I'll shake a human's hand. Are you one? So Malcolm finishes his story with this statement. Every day I live as if I'm already dead. I tell you what I would like uh, for you to do. When I am dead, I say it that way because from the things I know, I do not expect to live long enough to read this book in its finished form. I want you to just watch and see if I'm not right in what I say, that the white man in his press is going to identify me with hate. He will make use of me dead as he has made use of me alive as a convenient symbol of hatred. And that will help him to escape facing the truth that all I have been doing is holding up a mirror to reflect, to show the history of unspeakable crimes that his race has committed against my race. The end. You ready to take a break? Okay, let's do it. Black Muslims uh, have sometimes, whether you have or not, and I think probably you have, have sometimes, it seemed to me, been preaching hate to meet hate. Uh, I don't advocate any kind of hate. There's a lot of talk that sounds very much like it. No, I think that the guilt complex of the American white man is so profound until when you begin to analyze the real condition of the black man in America, instead of the American white man eliminating the causes that create that condition, He tries to cover it up by accusing his accusers of teaching hate. But actually, they're just exposing him for being responsible for what exists. Well, that's that's, uh, something of of an argument. But I've heard speeches made by some of the people of your group. I think I've heard you make speeches. It seemed to me that you were advocating uh, what I would have to describe, I think, as violence to meet the serious injuries that have been done your people, with which I totally agree. I don't call that violence. Uh, I don't in any way encourage black people to go out and initiate acts of aggression indiscriminately against whites. But I do believe that the black man in the United States and any human being anywhere is well within his right to do whatever is necessary, by any means necessary, to protect his life and property, especially in a 
in a country where the federal government itself has proven that it is either uh, in, unable or unwilling to protect the lives and property of those human beings. Just before Pierre takes it, you've got a pretty good fighter and the world's heavyweight champion lined up with you to help out. Yes, Pierre. <laughs> that excerpt is from Malcolm X on Front Page Challenge in 1965 and can be found in Canada's CBC archives. And we're back. Boy, those are quick breaks. Alexis, what did you think of the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley? And would you recommend this book? Uh, I love Lawrence Fishburne's reading of it. He did a really good job. Very good. But the book itself, I loved it. I liked hearing that detailed. And as I mentioned earlier, your, it feels like it fits in with the stories that we've read um, last year. And um, this feels like a catch-up, like they were overlapping. And here's a, another piece of that puzzle that we were reading. So I loved hearing the details about the people he knew, the experiences that he had, and, and how they impacted him, and how he got to be this person who could accept that... Um, all whites are devils. And that that um, was wrapped up and packaged very nicely in his telling of the story. Also liked hearing his reflection of his experience of travel. That was uh, good. So I feel like the sto- his story is his story. And I enjoyed hearing his story. It was um, good to hear that I have known him um, before I knew his story, I knew him as the the man that um called white people devils. That's what I knew about him. But knowing his story, uh, I learned that one on his trip to Mecca, he had a revelation. He hit it opened his eyes in a different way, so that he would receive um, not put that that stamp on everybody that all white people are devils um so i really appreciated his story and in fact no white person is the devil actions condemn people not their skin color so i appreciated it um it's autobiography it's his story and i I kept um, i did not get to read the epilogue me and neither. Like, I was hoping you yeah, read it. Unfortunately, I did not. I didn't. I thought it was going to be um, read by in the yeah, reading, and they cut it off. And then I looked, and the epilogue was like another hundred pages. And I was like, I'm not gonna make it. I'm not gonna make it. So I, I will step back and read that, and hopefully we can talk about that again. But yeah, I would definitely recommend this uh, book. It is a eye opener for myself. Um, it was really quality reading. How about you? I mean, you've read it before, so what's your thoughts? So as a child reading this, coming from a household where we always had um, very close friends of different backgrounds, um, and then having friends as I grew up from different backgrounds, I read this book from a place of like security where it was I, I could easily accept everything Malcolm was saying as his story and his story alone and appreciate the nuance yeah. and what made him come yeah. up um, to his conclusions. But reading it now where um, racial um, injustice is often in our face, it was harder and it was harder for me to constantly hear him um, talk about 
Uh, so he loved black people and you gotta love someone who, who loves you. (laughs) He loved, truly (laughs) loved his culture, but he was so lost because he was so isolated. Um, and he really, everything he believed about history, religion, and the world was tied to race. And it was tied to such a hard Um, bitter part of race relations in this country. So to hear that over and over again um, in this setting with the context of today was a little more difficult to me. It was heavier, not difficult. It was heavy. I can can certainly agree with you um, there because there were so many things that connected to today. And so that, that Mm -hmm. was, that was um, a challenge if you will. But um, still the, if you go ahead, go ahead. And the reason why I brought up the um, German who talked about German history. So matter of factly when and I'll bring up South Africa also, when you can talk about the ugliness of your history to someone who was a victim of it. There's a healing there, but that's not a place we've ever been here. Um, So you you can't openly talk to someone about even uh, what this country was like a year ago. 20 years ago or 30 years ago, because they might not care. And and there's not an open dialogue that you can, you can't just talk about facts because people don't want to hear facts. Some people, they don't, they don't care. They're motivated. (laughs) So even if, and even if that history is still affecting you today, people feel like they have their own problems. So get over Mm -hmm. yours. And that can be, that can be uh, heavy also. So. Uh, so it made me think too of, um, Project Girl, which was a book we read on the show in the first season and how she was so weighed down by the way, um, racial injustice had, Mm -hmm. um, affected her in life that when she moved to France, it was like a, all she wanted to do in life after that was live in France. She couldn't see past that. That was like her paradise in her mind. Um, so uh, long story short, this book was a little heavy for me now, but I do enjoy it. And I really enjoyed Lawrence Fishburne's reading of it. I felt like his accents. Now I'm not West Indian and I'm not. Um, he did a few accents from places I'm not a, not from. <laughs> so to me, they were perfect. <laughs> but I can say that, uh, you know, as someone who's not from Listen, those places. I'm going to so. be a little judgy. I don't <laughs> think they were all that great. OK. Oh, <laughs> You thought he did a Forrest Whitaker in Wakanda. <laughs> and that's exactly what I thought about. When, oh, no. Um, okay, don't listen to me. you saying that. I thought about oh, you saying that. Oh, yeah, that accent was wild. So, but yeah, I, I was like, is that an accent? But maybe it's great. I don't I don't speak another language. I'm not... Um, I'm not These connected are English. to any of that. Okay. Any of um, uh, another culture's language. That's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So I don't or know. Accent. Yeah, accent. accent. So yeah. I, I can't say that it's good. I can't say that it was great, but I don't. And I neither should I, I. But I got to tell you, I, I think, um, you know, I might be able to do a, another job. OK, y'all. Okay. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Look, Lawrence, Lawrence Fishburne, when you listen, because I know you will. I, I was just teasing. I can take some lessons from you. So Lawrence okay. Fishburne's accent isn't good, but yours is. I agree with that. Sure. Lawrence, so anyway. Mr. Lawrence Fishburne, please. I was the Lawrence Fishburne. He is actor yeah. and the control he has over his yeah. um, vocal 
inflections and the the strength in which he speaks. I mean, that man yeah, is, he talented, is very talented, which we already yes, knew. Yes. I would never take that away. Yeah. From <laughs> so, yes, I would recommend <laughs> this book. I think it should be required reading. I love the nuance it brings to a man who's painted very black and white, no pun intended. Um, so I love it for that. And uh, yeah, I'd recommend it. Well, there you have it, folks. Another book in our season. So, Kari, what are we reading next week? Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. And this is actually such a special episode because we released it in 2019 for a select group of test listeners. This is the first time we're going to release it on the show officially. And there's like a special guest. Wink, wink. <laughs> Thank you for listening Woo-hoo. to Lit Society. We look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday, with our pre-recorded one, of course. <laughs> Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Honoria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us, because we love you too. Thank you. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society and visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, read something. Read something.